All right, so hi everyone. I'm talking to Eric Davis, um, who is a writer, a public speaker, sort of broadcaster, pod, well, podcaster, essayist, meditation teacher now, um, to some extent, and uh, sort of social organizer in some ways, who is been one of the the leading writers, I and mean, I would say the leading writer in English on the relationship between uh, technology, mysticism, consciousness um, alteration, cultural change, you know, social change, weird culture, etc. Uh, for sort of decades now, um, still very well known for the book Technosis, which looked at the kind of relationships between technology, uh, sort of mystical thought, Gnostic thought um, in the late nineties. Visionary State, sort of collection of essays about Californian culture, which is something I'm sure we're going to talk about here. His most recent book is um, uh, Nomad Codes as well, a collection of great collection of essays. And a book, most recent book is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica and Visionary Experience in the 70s. Uh, if you go look for the podcast feed for the Culture Power Politics Seminar Series, and we had Eric do an extremely, like an exhaustive and exhausting like seminar <laughs> on, that, on that book uh, a year, last year. Um, I think probably... But, but, like I said at the time, probably the hardest, hardest we ever worked a contributor to that seminar. Yeah. Um, and it's um, and 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 also I would and also I would really encourage people, as I always do, to check out the archive for Eric's kind of long running uh, sem- a podcast series, expanding mind, um, e- exploring cultures of consciousness. Um, which you know is, is on hiatus, maybe gone, maybe finished, maybe coming back in some transformed form at some point, but has generated an extraordinary archive, like looking at that whole range of topics from a sort of critical but not cynically sceptical perspective, which I think is really important. And I would say, like, you know, for a, for the ACFM, you know, project, it's been quite an inspiration in, in many ways. And it's certainly sort of, um, you know, certainly, yeah, it has been for me. And so what we wanted to talk about today, what, what we sort of decided we had to talk to somebody about was and Eric was the absolutely the first choice and ideal person for us to talk to about it was is uh what Keir on the show what Keir refers to sometimes as the cosmic right I think we we got that phrase from somewhere else on really the sort of interaction between um sort of new age culture conspiracy theory psychedelia etc um which has sort of cropped up on the on the you know which is and sections of the political right or sort of conservative political forces which has seemed to have become a distinctive feature of various sort of cultural zones over the past few years um and so i guess i mean this is quite a general sort of topic area but i think that's something i mean that's it's certainly something eric that you covered on expanding mind in a few different times, and it's both from a historical and a sort of contemporary vantage point. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a couple of ways into it. Um, first, I'll just say that I've been interested in let's just call it conspiracy theory. It's always important whenever you use that phrase to just immediately mark that the term is problematic. That it uh, is a it was a term that was literally designed in order to produce a prol- particular political function. In a nutshell, uh, at the the time the Warren Commission came out and declared that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting alone when he killed uh, John F. Kennedy, that uh, there was an immediately a sort of crisis of, of of authority because everyone was like, "No way, man! That's that's ridiculous!" And people started to go after it, and so you got these other ideas that were part of public discourse. And the phrase conspiracy theory emerges then precisely as a way to cordon off all of those alternative scenarios and separate it from the official story. So anytime you use conspiracy theory in a sort of unreflective way, in a way, it's easy to participate in that zone. So obviously, there are conspiracies, some conspiracy theories are true. And and there's another additional problem, which is that the phrase unfortunately blends two different modes which are admittedly are also often blended themselves but it's important to distinguish from the get-go that in a way you can have a category of conspiracy theories that are located in 
purely historical secular forces that are uncovered through processes of investigation, research, uh, you know, fact-based, you know, there's speculation, there's ideas, there's concepts, but it stays pretty much in the realm of what you could call, you know, historical analysis or journalism. And then there's another thing that we also call conspiracy theory, which is the super bizarre, far-out, mystical, non-ordinary forms of, of... also, you know, uh, identifying hidden agents behind the surface of consensus reality or a conventional history. So, you know, the obvious, you know, obvious example like David Icke with the like the the lizard race from Orion is actually bred in with the aristocrats and European royalty, and you know that kind of thing. Where you're like, whoa, that's pretty far out, man. That's like much more like science fiction <laughs> or fantasy. But that's also a conspiracy theory, and right. so that's already complicated. And then it's additionally complicated because those things are often blended. Uh, and a lot of the things that that I would talk about now in terms of the question you've asked, and I will narrow this down, um, are, are feature that kind of blend. So anyway, I've been interested in this stuff for uh, for a long time. Um, I I became more interested in it, I think, around the time of the you know the Trump uh, lead up to the Trump election, or interested in it in a new way, um, lead up to the to uh, the Trump election because it was taking such an interesting political. Uh, force and a lot of new images and, and processes were, were were coming out, uh, mixed in with a lot of new forms of propaganda that were themselves um, very recognizable to me as coming out of paradoxically a kind of left or anarcho left uh, tradition of using pranks and disingenuous humor and uh, in, insider. Uh, references as sort of a, a kind of counterpolitics, something that I trace in high weirdness to the work of Robert Anton Wilson, who himself is a politically complicated figure. He was an anarchist in some ways. He, he was a libertarian, but not in, in the way that people t- usually mean that way, particularly in a European discussion. But let's talk about libertarianism later. Um, and what I was, I was sort of interested in that and, and in his work, Illuminatus, which was written in the late 60s at a time of, of strong paranoia and justifiable paranoia in, uh, amongst many on the left. He was an anti-war activist and many people in the anti-war scene were quite aware that there were, you know, hidden agents. And so there was an air of con- kind of conspiracy around that. Um, and at the same time, there were these sort of fever dreams of the counterculture of these sort of psychedelic visions, and they all get mixed up. And so you start to get this very uh, intensified, wild kind of conspiracy thinking that Illuminatus both sort of celebrates and critiques and indulges in and turns into a kind of literature uh, and, and playing with the kind of um, political phantasms that inhabit America in particular, which is a, a long and rich and, and self-conscious tradition of of conspiracy theory and 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 paranoia, largely on the right, but not exclusively so. Um, you know, there's a that famous essay. Anybody who who studies American history will stumble across the Richard Hofstetter essay from 1964 about the paranoid style uh, of American politics, and which a, a, an essay that itself was also reacting to that key moment of JFK assassination, which is kind of like the the uh, the origin point for you know contemporary uh, conspiracy theory in in America it's sort of a, a lot a lot of roads lead back to that room even though of course they go farther back to the protocols of the elders of Zion and sort of European traditions of again generally right wing or reactionary forms of uh, of conspiracy theory so this there's all this stuff kind of going on I'm kind of more interested in now and then like everybody else I've been watching as all of these fringe topics uh, that and narratives and, and symbols that I've been tracking my whole career, you know, in my 50s, uh, became more and more present, more and more visible in popular culture, on the internet, in YouTube videos, in movies, in, in references, everything. It's just like more and more, there's more and more psychedelics, there's more and more occultism and esotericism, and more and more conspiracy theory in the broad sense, you know, including political conspiracies and, you know, uh, wild pseudoscience and 
you know, like, you know, likely scenarios. And, you know, I always got to say that it's not like I'm writing it all off and just saying it's a, you know, hey, guys, it's a New York Times reality. Stick to the facts. No way. <laughs> it's not it's not going. It's more way more complicated than that. But nonetheless, and then a lot of stuff about UFOs and ancient aliens and hidden forces in history and then increasingly dark scenarios. And I would I would kind of point to uh, a couple of things that I think are are contemporary developments that are worth uh, talking about. One is the growth, and I would say that this is probably equally true in, in, in both a right and a left way, although those categories themselves become blurred by this very process we're talking about. But there's a, there was a, there's a growing emphasis or an uh, analysis of what you could call the archons. And the archons is something that's ex- that are ex- who are explicitly evoked by some, but more generally kind of characterize the style of forces that the that various theories posit as being the actual drivers of history. And the archons go back to ancient Gnosticism. So even though it sounds a little like a bit of a leap, it, stay with me for a moment. So in the Gnostic view, in a way, could be seen as the first sort of um, paradoxical or critical form of religion, in the sense that if the mainline uh, Jewish account of the origins of the world says, oh, there was a Garden of Eden, and there was God, and God creates Adam and and Eve, and they screw up, and then God kicks them out, and history begins, and that's why we suffer. And the Gnostics, at least some of them, come along and say, well, you know, actually, you guys aren't reading that text right. You have to read that text through what we would call now a more paranoid critical approach, meaning that actually that guy who's running the garden is not the real God. He's a lower God. He's a God. He's, he's, a, he's the product of some cosmological process, and they had different narratives to describe how this lower god or, or uh, demiurge came about, but he's not the real deal. He thinks he is. In some versions, he's just ignorant, and in some versions, he's actively evil. And we, therefore, are kind of trapped in the cosmos that he and his associates, aka the archons, control. Another way of understanding the archons is to think of them in terms of astrology, like, uh, you know, modern astrology puts a lot of emphasis on our own will and our own ability to sort of psychologically come to terms with the forces that, in some sense, characterize us or describe us, you know, through our birth chart, who, who control us to some degree. But older forms of astrology were much darker and more deterministic. Basically, you're, you know, if you're born with a bad Saturn conjunction, you're just screwed. It's just going just gonna to ruin your life. You're probably going to die early. No way out. So, but you can imagine that as these guys, as archons, which some people saw them as, which is their rulers. That's what the word means. It's like arche or, uh, uh, you know, architecture. It's like a, the, the rule. And so these are rulers, powers, and principalities that were modeled on worldly leaders. They're, the word archon can refer both to a kind of metaphysical principle of control and a real-world political status, like the leader of a, of a city-state would be described as an archon in, in, in Greek often. So it's this weird form of like partly real politics and partly uh, a metaphysical speculation about the ultimately evil rulers that control material reality. And the goal of the Gnostic is to break through that false story, the story where God is the supreme leader and we got kicked out of Eden, and to say, no, 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 it's the opposite. That's a lower God we're trying to escape. So not only do you have this kind of paranoid structure inside the mythology, you also have this this kind of exemplary act of of counter-reading, where you take a dominant story or a myth and you read against the grain as a way of exposing the hidden forces behind the surface story, which itself is tied to a kind of narrative of liberation, like in order to break through this realm, leave the fallen world that's ruled by the, by the demiurge and make it into the realm of the true God. Now, you know, that's a, that's a very nutshell version of Gnosticism, which is a very complicated 
field that some people don't even think we should call, use the word anymore because it's too complicated. Nonetheless, that covers enough of the bases that it's worth invoking here because one of the things that's happened in conspiracy theories and just sort of weird speculative thought in general over the last handful of years, you know, half decade or so, is that the figure of the archons have become more and more explicit. That the idea that we are being, you know, ruled like, not unlike David Icke's lizard overlords, but we're ruled by forces that are kind of both real world elites with their hands on forms of power that we can't conceive of, and mystical, otherworldly, metaphysical principles that might either be alien, like actual, you know, concrete physical aliens, or other dimensions of reality, or Satan, or some kind of, you know, form, form of devilry. But what's interesting about the Archons is that they're, they're, more, they're more real world than, than demons, Demons have an, intent, have an inherently metaphysical or otherworldly character to them. The demonic, the satanic, the idea of devils. The archons are a much more interesting mix of real-world control and otherworldly evil, let's say. And so to me, it's, it indicates that one of the functions, one of the ways that the contemporary conspiracy theory is working is that it's an, it's it's increasingly trying to think the at the same time elite power in all of its various functionings the technologies of control which have become more and more sophisticated more and more pervasive and to restore some kind of metaphysical value structure that can that can provide a meaning or a narrative to the conspiracy theorists that makes sense some kind of war of light and darkness, some kind of um, uh, struggle that ennobles the theorist in their own work to, under- to uncover all these plots, but also to give them a kind of motive, motive in history. And described that way, you, you notice that I, I intentionally didn't really politicize it right or left. And that's because I think it's really important to look at this stuff not under that guise immediately, even though... Almost immediately, the next step is to say, okay, how is this being weaponized and absorbed into contemporary culture, contemporary, you know, reality building, contemporary narratives? Uh, and here, that here's my second point. My first point was about the rise of the archons as an important figure, and there's more to say about the Gnostic dimension of conspiracy theory. But to get to the second point, this is something that I've noticed much more recently. And I've been studying it, not exhaustively, because I can only take so much of the stuff before I I start to, you know, lose it, um, because it gets really dark and claustrophobic after a while, spending too much time with it. But, you know, not alone, a lot of people have been kind of looking and have noticed this phenomenon. What it is, is a sharp uptick within the worlds that we generally think of as progressive, on the kind of new age end, so new agers, uh, environmentalists, uh, natural healers, alternative medicine people, psychedelic people, Burning Man people, yoga practitioners, that that zone, like, you know, it's an interlocking kind of complex zone, which is kind of my beat as like a cultural uh, critic or something like that. I mean, I have other ones too, but that's one that I that I sort of, you know, partly identify and come from and then partly think about and 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 track although probably less so these these last years than than in the past but in any case i have noticed anecdotally as well as many other people who occupy different nodes of this sprawling network that there's been a significant uptick in people who are reproducing particular conspiracy memes that are drawn from the large bizarre network known as QAnon. And so for folks who aren't aren't tapped in, uh, QAnon is a very strange phenomenon that's really taken off only over the last three, four years since Trump. Uh, And it's it's important to say that it is essentially a pro-Trump, a Trumpian, you know, meta-conspiracy theory. At its heart is, is Trumpism. But it elaborates in this incredibly networked way that's 
in some ways, either very sophisticated in terms of how it's been designed or at least seeded, or for whatever reason, has figured out the optimum viral logic of our contemporary technological uh, environment and media environment. Because it's sort of like a, it's a conspiracy, but a meta-conspiracy that has many, many nodes, many, many features uh, anti-vax ideas, ideas about the deep state, which begin as a political critique, but then take on increasingly dark forms, ideas about uh, Hollywood and uh, pederast, uh, ritual child abuse uh, groups among the elites, so Epstein and all that kind of stuff, um, various forms of mind control, uh, and 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 it's sort of a DIY live action role playing game, and that's what's brilliant about it is that as you play the start to play the game, you participate in what a lot of QAnon people call research. Like if you ask them, like, "Gee, this sounds like conspiracy theory," they say, "No, no, no, we're doing research." And if you go, "Huh, I don't know. That doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like your skepticism is really." very sharpened as you go through all this crap and they'll go no 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 we're the real skeptics you're the one who's buying the you know the truth so it's got these very clever ways of kind of encouraging people to go deeper into research and what research is is this vast you know largely unmapped i don't i haven't i mean i'm i'm not that deep into this stuff because as i say i can only take so much of it before i need to you know get need the light of sanity um uh, it gets very claustrophobic and very and very dark and twisty, and it's animated in some zones by a very kind of pathological energy. Uh, some of it is also probably true, and some of it is definitely true. Some of it involves critiques of power, critiques of, let's say, contemporary pharmaceutical companies. Well, there's some things that we can talk long and hard about what's screwed up about pharmaceutical companies and the way they organize so-called objective scientific research, the way they suppress uh, alternative healing. I mean, you know, it's like right away you can see sort of how truth and legitimate critique get involved with stranger critique and then fantasy. And it's, so it's a very difficult zone to, to maneuver. Anyway, so this is going on. This has been going on for years, largely from the right, largely around the fears of the deep state. Basically, the idea is that the deep state, in conjunction with these worldly elites who practice ritual forms of child abuse in which they're actually kind of reaping the horrible emotions of these abused children as a kind of food that feeds them or maybe some kind of mystical demonic forces or aliens, something like that. Um, that the deep state in concert with these people is, is, is about ready to unleash another version of the new world order, global control, uh, you know, absolute domination through technology and mind control devices. And that the heroic, the only thing standing between us and this horrible future, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, is the noble knight, Donald Trump, along with some help from Putin and other kind of uh, right-wing conservative uh, religious characters. So that's sort of the basic element. Yeah, we should explain why it's called QAnon, because it's this... Oh, right. Basically, it started off with these some character on 4chan call, calling themselves Q, just issuing these cryptic posts that are almost like these kind of Delphic, Delphic Oracle kind of statements that just don't really mean anything, like watch for the Blue Lagoon at three or something. And people started interpreting them as as statements from some hidden, de- some hidden operative, some ally of Trump's who is kind of helping in this war against darkness. And and the character post has Q. I mean, that's and that's where it all kind of spirals out from. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I and I'm glad you brought that up too because it's important. When I, I mentioned before how it's so it's so well designed to the degree that it is designed. And I, I do believe there were game, game, sophisticated gaming people who were part of the initial play because yeah, yeah. They, were, they were, it's just so well done. And part of it is that it, it gives you the internet surfer uh, and it, the adventure of trying to decode and decrypt 
the twilight language, this the ambivalent, ambiguous language of contemporary media, so that you start to put the pieces together. And as you put the pieces together, you you seem to be driving towards a a, a more and more explicit truth, which of course never arrives. And so you're in this perpetual game of research. And as you go along, you're just pulled farther and farther away from like the, let's let's call it the 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 dwindling sphere of consensus reality, you know, and, and so it, part of it is it's, it's just fun. You got to put the pieces together. They got some lucky breaks where like, you know, uh, Trump did a hand gesture just at the time that he mentioned something. And, you know, he's been all sorts of predictions about events that are coming. And the other thing, the important thing to mention about the QAnon world is that not only does it rest on a fundamental good and evil story, which is always important to recognize. You always know uh, conspiracy theories are getting mystical or phantasmagoric when they get more explicit about the good and evil battle. But the battle also has a culmination point, the great awakening or the tribulation or whatever it is. Again, these are apocalyptic Christian motifs drawn from centuries of historic uh, Christian historical imagination that posits an end times where there's a you know a, a, an antichrist and a control over world government or a control that then is finally overcome with the forces of light uh, and that same kind of anticipatory uh, temporality is part of QAnon and that's another reason that it becomes very addictive because it's like the real hit the final pile of cocaine is just around the corner just keep <laughs> yeah. just keep, keep taking your little yeah. toots and you're really gonna you're just gonna fully indulge you know that your desire will be fully satisfied yeah. just around the corner and so it, 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 it exploits those things anyway that's all a lead up to say to go back to the point that I was saying is that in these more or less progressive worlds over the last few months, there has been a significant and noticeable uptick of individuals who are succumbing, reproducing, whatever you want to call it, um, elements of this particular scenario. They don't always recognize even that they are participating in a Trumpian game. Some of them, though, do. I remember the, very clearly the first person I heard about, who will obviously remain nameless, someone I knew about from the festival scene, an older woman, uh, you know, not, the, not an intellectual, not, to, what, you know, whatever, but, but a very sweet person and very generous to the community and, you know, had some new agey kind of approaches to life and medicine and things like that, but a very sweet, open-hearted, progressive, hippie person. And then I just heard, you know, this was this one was actually a, 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 over a year ago. Was like, yeah, no, she's totally QAnon. So much so that she actually thinks Trump is the the, the only thing keeping this stuff at bay. So I, when I heard that, I was like, okay, that's not just about this one woman. That's not even just about the attraction of conspiracy type thinking. It's about a whole like mutation in the relationship of mind and reality and value to technology and how technology is is playing a, a, an integral role in fomenting and feeding these kinds of models and that this is going to be significant this has political significance even in some sense ontological significance if you think about how consensus reality is maintained and it certainly is a sign that um you know, I don't even know. How, there's so many different ways to go, but let's just say that it's 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 of great significance. It's not the kind of thing we should just go. Well, those are soft-headed, you know, yoga, yoga burning man people. What did, what did you expect? Uh, and I'm like, no, no, that it's more than that. You know, even if if you know people who are hardcore critical thinkers, they still wrestle with all these problems because there's some really good critical thinking embedded inside a lot of conspiracy theories as. As models or myths, they're often very, very right on. But in any case, I, those two points, the rise of the archons and the increasing noticeable uptick of QAnon-style um, ideas and motifs and narratives and images inside generally progressive worlds, uh, you know, indicates that I think we're, we're, we're reaching a kind of tipping point around um, around conspiracy theories, which have you know already been growing a lot. So it's a good time to talk about the the cosmic right. 
Yeah, well, that's really interesting. And it's also, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, this was exactly the thing that prompted us to want to talk about this at the moment, actually. It was precisely this, it was the circulation of QAnon, you know, the circulation of QAnon conspiracies, like um, G5, I mean, the G5 COVID conspiracy theory, which has been partly circulated, I think, through some, through QAnon adjacent networks. Absolutely. Those are very related um, now. You know, which is obviously related to anti-vaccination, um, sort of ideology and this sort of paranoia about, you know, any in some sense, a sort of paranoia about, I mean, I, I mean, I would say to, I mean, partly what seems to be informed some of that stuff is a certain paranoia just about sociality as, as such in some ways, just. A, yeah, absolutely. The, this, the, the very, you know, the idea of, you know, it's the, it's partly what happens in a situation which the idea, any idea of the sort of the, the state or the public institutions, like, it, ever being sort of benign like ever actually just looking after you ever actually doing anything for you is just being completely evacuated from the imaginary terrain so you can only really see this sort of the i mean you know i, I mean i think it, to me in some of those discourses the the deep state is just a sort of a metonym for the state as such and it's a sort of re, reaction to the recognition that under neoliberalism the state which is supposed to look after you has become you know part of the problem it's become but the state has been retooled you know in the period between the the collapse of the new deal settlement and the kind of current phase of entrenched you know entrenched hyper neoliberalism you know the state has stopped being the thing that would protect you from capitalism and has become the thing that will do everything it can mm. to help capitalism kill you yeah. you know to help it destroy you to help it get into you and well that that's part of our predicament in in dealing with this stuff is it's a uh, it, it it's it you, you know just like so many things these days it's it's easy to be polarized and so as one starts you know if you take it the approach that we have where we are critical thinkers with investment in 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 specific you know political accounts of the actual historical forces of our time uh, recognizing the complexity of history the cl- complexity of institutions etc cetera, etc cetera, you know the temptation is just to kind of critique and write off or 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 uh even mock or or just look on in, in befuddlement when it, both in terms of the actual explicit critical ideas that are embedded inside a lot of conspiracy theories but even larger than that is that they're perf- they're I hate to say this they're in a way perfectly reasonable responses to <laughs> yeah, the degree yeah, yeah. of the collapse of our institutions of you know conventional science of conventional medicine of you know uh, you know they're, they're they're marvelous metaphors and i don't want to just sit, call them oh they're just metaphors but they're marvelous metaphors when they are just metaphors for the sense of powerlessness for the this the the absolute disappointment in in these institutions for the lack of trust because it's it's been it's a two-way street man trust is a two-way street and there are many reasons to not trust anymore. Uh, and that's, you know, of course, one of the main psychological f- things that allow people to, to go into these narratives is that they, they reach a point where they f- start distrusting a, a, a source of information, a source of authority, a source of practices, social practices. And for whatever reason, and that's, I think, an interesting thing to talk about, rather than being like, okay, we're in this struggle, we got to struggle again, even more with these institutions, you go, that's it, they're evil, we're going to write them all off, it's got to be something else, there's got to be something else going on. But it all kind of makes sense. And so we're in, it's a tricky place where you, you, you want to sort of clear up the field and get a lot of this myth out of the way and get the really fuzzy forms of thinking out of the way. But when you do that, you're left with a lot of really coherent stuff. And like, I would take 5G as a, as a great example for me. I am not an expert in these matters, but I do know people who've spent a lot of time looking at it. And without going into the detail, because in some ways the details, it's not like they're a, a trap, but they, they get you off from, from the larger dynamics in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, I believe. Um, that there are reasons to be concerned about the biological effects of these particular technologies. And when you couple that with the way that we have absolutely no power over these, you know, technological mutations, this installation, particularly of 5G, which of course isn't just about better signals and blah, blah, blah. It's about instituting 
the Internet of Things. It's about instituting Internet everywhere, surveillance everywhere, trackers everywhere. You know, it's, it is, you know, if you want to think of it as the Antichrist system, which, as I said, is a perfectly good metaphor for the degree of control just under this weird capitalist ideology rather than a, a, a kind of demonic uh, totalitarian state, uh, that it's a, it's a completely legitimate reaction on that level. And so even the idea that it's having these particular things, but then what happens is it gets literalized, it becomes a form of kind of popular imagination uh, that's, that has just the right mixture of truth and fantasy to draw people in and then also allow more conventional actors to write the whole thing off. And that's where you get back into the trap of even the term conspiracy theory. is like it's very hard to talk about conspiracy theory critically and not simply fall back into its original purpose, which is to other and distance ourselves from social narratives, uh, actual political claims, actual scientific claims that are embedded in these popular folkloric forms, and to just other the whole thing in some vague. And you're like, you wind up being a tool of the authorities if you're just tr- if you're trying to talk about conspiracy theory, particularly when you recognize some of its really dire political implications in terms of you know of QAnon. So it's a very tricky zone that I kind of enjoy for its trickiness, but it's it's tough. I always feel, every time I talk about it, I always feel insufficient. Like I, I didn't take something into account or I wasn't acknowledging some of the important, uh, you know, features, uh, features of the thing. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's partly is inherent to the thing. I mean, there's a book from a few years ago now by my old friend Claire Birchall, which is a sort of deconstructionist account of conspiracy theory, which... Oh, what's it called? Um, I can't even remember what it's called now. But it, but it, she partly writes about the way in which conspiracy theory just, you know, is, is partly the... It, you know, conspiracy theory discourse is sort of a... a res, is by definition sort of textually excessive to the point where you never can actually sort of stop. You never can feel you've actually done the analysis. That's very good. F- fully adequately. But also, I would say also in terms of reference, in a slightly more prosaic sense, you know, what, with reference to what you were saying, actually, conspiracy theory, the term conspiracy theory, it works a lot like the term populism in some ways uh, at the present yes. time. And then it simply just, it indicates the kind of break. And to me, I mean, it, all these things are, are partly just symptomatic of, you know, what I'm always asserting is the sort of historical phenomenon of uh, the past 10 years, which is the collapse of authority of the kind of professional technocratic political class, which sort of crystallised in the 80s and 90s, you know, had its its most kind of accomplished representative in Obama, really. And, it, you know, and the, the sort of collapse of authority of that political class really just you know, for basically economic reasons that since 2008 it's become increasingly apparent they can no longer offer people what they were able to offer them for a few decades, which is, yep. you know, very high standard of live, material standard of living, despite the fact that society was disintegrating. And so, you know, and, and under and the, the trouble with dismissing both populism and conspiracy theory is that really, you know, it's difficult to dismiss either of them without just wanting to reassert the authority of, you know, of that gang of people who just did everything, just completely bent every rule in the book to deprive Bernie of the nomination and save us from, save civilization from collapse. So I think that is, you know, there's a kind of obviously really sort of interestingly, connect, you know, connected. And I, but I think part of what's going, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about this, though, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in as well, in terms of this, the bigger context is, is just, is, which is something you've always already alluded to, which is really, I mean, the rise of, you know, what Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, what Nick Cernicek calls platform capitalism. I mean, basically the rise of Silicon Valley as, in some sense, I would say that the leading sort of section of the, of capital globally, with all of that entails, and entails all it entails, as you've said, you know, entails the rise of this of a kind of surveillance culture. Entails, but it also it also entails, yeah, you know, it entails on the one hand, you know, in, in the sort of normalization in some way, a sort of universalization of Californian culture because that's the cultural milieu it's come from in some ways, and that's something to talk about. But it also entails this. You know, it, it entails this just extraordinary sort of concentrations of power, like just historically unprecedented concentrations of unaccountable power. And I was listening to a talk. There's a talk online. It was part of the Red, uh, the Seattle Red May Festival, just a week or so ago. A talk by Jody Dean, who was talking about what she was calling neo feudalism, and and she yeah. was pointing to the kind of rise of these 
you know, features because I mean you you know you could make an interesting analogy between some of what you're talking about and you know the resurgences of Gnosticism and magical thinking and etc in the medieval period and in in historical periods when people feel indeed people sort of feel feel that any kind of legitimate or meaningful vehicle for sort of political change or social change or just collective agency has sort of been shut down by the vast concentrations of power in particular contexts so that that seems like an interesting you know that seems like a sort of um you know that seems sort of potentially significant in terms of understanding all the sort of all that stuff yeah yeah i mean we could talk about the 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 kind of california aspect of it and you know in some ways we're we're still uh, operating in the incisive but to my mind incomplete uh analysis that that uh um uh, Richard Barbrook and I can't remember his writing partner came up with the yeah, no one ever can the uh, the, yeah sorry the California, <laughs> the California ideology yeah the California ideology which he described you know as a a blending of hippie values uh, you know freedom the individual creativity etc with uh, uh, increasingly hardcore market driven libertarianism. Um, as a kind of you know operating software of world building, and then when you, if you and then he didn't talk about the the technological futurism so much, but if you then add on a layer of uh, progress, like sort of transhumanist technological uh, uh, speculation, and mixing it with those other things, and you get this very strange mixture that sort of you know now. No, no longer amazing, but at one point was amazingly represented by the representation of all of, of you know, uh, leaders of these corporations going to Burning Man, which has very different roots, though there is this element of what is libertarianism or what is hippie anarchism or what is that kind of freeing of, of the self. And the problem that I have with the way that the California ideology has come to be constructed or even California in general in these discourses is that there's just not enough emphasis, and you see this with Adam Curtis as well, is that there's there's just not an, enough of an emphasis on that these these were large-scale, multidimensional multifaceted movements, let's say the hippie vibe or whatever, and that there were many uh, d different sides of it, including extremely social ones, including the, you know, communal movements and the exuberant embrace of uh, the idea that we could engineer better social experiences, be better realities for people to live in. So, for example, for a certain kind of critic, the whole Earth Review and the idea of maker culture and the idea of... Um, uh, you know, sort of tools first, uh, just leads straight into this dystopian solutionism or some kind of, uh, you know, rule by the libertarian engineers, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just not true. It's, it's, a, it's a complex, rich phenomena. And it's once again that there's a kind of fundamental historical problem, and it's, I bet somebody's named it, which is that you have a complex social movement and certain parts of it become selected by the next order of power. And so that you're sort of drawn into it. If, you, if you're kind of naive, naively celebrating those social movements, it's very easy to then become part of a certain moment where there really are better possibilities. And then those get selected over time into something that's much more Un, you know, uh, unsatisfying, uh, unhelpful, uh, and then as a, it, it, with, from a historical perspective, you look back and you say, "Oh, that's what it was all along. All the hippies were were a, a road towards." Uh, you know, dominant uh, cyber culture, and I just think that's not good history. And, and, and again, yeah. you, you see it in a lot of people, and you, you know, this totally jives with your whole orientation towards the liberatory social dimensions of psychedelics, of dance culture, of of you know forms that other that other people could more cynically see as just parts of the problem. Yeah, well, I think well, completely. And I mean, people, anyone listening to the show is going to be sick of sick of hearing me say all that. So, but I think, but like, <laughs> you know, let's but, let's. But let's I think also, on. I mean, in a way, there's an even. And this sort of, I think, this ties up more as well with some of the stuff you were saying before, or it puts it in an interesting light. I mean, if you take the perspective of, you know, someone like Hart and Negri, I think, 
he would say, well, actually, the truth is what happens is you get these zones of kind of very intensive radical social experimentation, you know, whether it's the free cities of, of Italy in the early middle, mid, in the Middle Ages, or it's Paris in the 19th century, or it's, and it's California, like in, you know, the late 20th century, it's California going back to the early 20th century in some ways. And capital itself, it's capital, the most innovative, dynamic, hungry, parasitic sections of capital get drawn to them. Yeah. You know, so California has to be there before Silicon Valley can come, can emerge and can that's become the, yeah, can that's become a wonderful way. Can become, you know, the zone, you know, that it you know, it needs that energy. And yeah. to to some extent it has to cultivate it. To some extent it has to protect it. You know, for a long time San Francisco is like the the protected garden, you know, to or, it, until or, uh, but not only uh, then until it finally gets well, you Yeah, can, yeah. I I think it I I come I go back to uh something Bruce Sterling said. I think he wrote I think he even did it in his article about Burning Man, you know, way before it was it was just an obvious place that tech people went. It was just it was in Wired magazine, the mid nineties, something like that. But he talked about the way that hippie culture and, and kind of Bohemia in general is a petri dish. Yeah, you know, exactly. and that's a really interesting way of yeah, thinking about exactly. it. You're like, oh, you know, and you're like, okay, so then, you know, do you buy the Petri dish? And then as somebody who participated in on the edges of um, digital culture in the 1990s and can, you know, speak to a fact that however naive you might later see a lot of those uh, actors being, that at the time they're, they're not motivated. They really are motivated by attempt to make the world a better place to create more, you know, uh, you know, both social and individual freedoms and uh, to overcome some of the sclerosis within uh, contemporary civilization, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just, it just loses. And then you get into an interesting kind of metaphysical problem almost, which is that power, what do we do with it? It seems to really corrupt. It really <laughs> does seem to corrupt, you know, like it's like, it's no joke. And so if that's true on some naive, but profoundly insightful level that like you concentrate power it's going to go south you know in a capitalist regime but probably in other regimes as well that then you get into this i think one of the the crises on the left and one of the reasons that people who are let's say good hearted folks who are kind of new age but really believe that that light and love is part of the world and that we need to get back to nature and get more in balance and get connected to other people and that kind of stuff why they would be drawn into a QAnon scenario is partly that we're, we we don't have an equivalent kind of I'll just say it religiosity yeah. uh, on the left anymore that progressive values the way that progressive movements have been a kind of religion, which is something that conservatives say all the time. You know, they're like, look, liberalism, I mean, what we call liberalism, let's call it progressivism, is really like a kind of religion where it needs to, it needs to constantly reproduce a new enemy, which is the racist or the this or the that, in order to stage a kind of confrontation between people we, we, we have empathy for and these forces of reaction. And it just keeps doing that as a way to extend its power. And now, from our point of like dystopian collapse, we can recognize, again, how much of that has been captured by... Um, by globalist forces, by the, the and, and one, one phrase that came to mind, and I'm, I'm ranting a little bit here, but I'll get back to the point, uh, that, that came to me very clearly over a conversation I was having um, with, with folks uh, at, the, at the Rebel Wisdom uh, Conference, which is another kind of interesting space, uh, but uh, was that one of the guys was talking about cosmopolitanism and the importance of cosmopolitanism, and he was talking about this idea of rooted cosmopolitans, the idea that you could have both a specific identity that is responsible and rooted in a particular kind of current space and time identity, um, you know, uh, uh, ethnic configuration, and at the same time be a cosmopolitan. And he used that word, and I was like, cosmopolitan? Nobody uses that word anymore. And then I thought about it, and I thought about how appealing cosmopolitanism has been to me in the past. What does it mean? And of course, one of the only places you really see that term a lot these days is in a negative conspiratorial way, where which is not the rooted cosmopolitan, but of course the rootless cosmopolitan, which is often a stand-in for the Jew, and that this becomes part of the evil, that the evil of the one world order, the evil of, uh, which is itself a metaphor for kind of global neoliberalism, is that it has absorbed 
again, part of what cosmopolitanism is. And so now if you just reproduce in some kind of simple way a call for cosmopolitanism, for the rainbow flag, for togetherness of, of different peoples, each living their own wonderful, most, you know, melting pot life, and if you, it, it just sounds like neoliberal crap. And, you, and it's like, oh man, where's my, you know, it's like the, the progressive you know, form of religiosity that drew us to some model of the world that would make space for many different kinds of people, many different kinds of bodies, many different kinds of capacities in a larger positive social framework, that that very motif has been so thoroughly absorbed into a, 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 a you know, like the Democratic Party, the kind of neoliberal overlords, that you, we, we're, you, don't have a, you don't have everywhere to go anymore. And so people who do want to have these sort of gushy new age, but still lovable values that I still share in, in many ways, it's easier to find them in a kind of QAnon scenario where all the evil is very apparent and you just sort of project some kind of resolution or some kind of liberation on the other side of what is in many ways a more honest assessment of the forces that are kind of constructing contemporary reality. So I, this, this whole problem of how to generate a, um, an exuberant but even somewhat irrational or, or post-rational or visionary or uh, ideal or religious sort of imagination that is capable of not just reacting negatively, but, but producing a positive value that's general enough for lots of different people to find buy-in and to then create a bridge between different perspectives uh, and different you know, positions, which is you know, part of the problem on, uh, of, a, uh, of a left that's in some zones dominated by identity politics. That's part of the, 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 the crux is that we can't just have a rational, grounded, skeptical uh, reaction to what's going on. There's, there's got to be some kind of positive principle, and it's just not that available in a way that it has been in previous uh, generations. No, well, yeah, I think, well, I think you're right. I think that's completely right. And I mean, that's really echoes. I mean, the few notes I made before we started talking were sort of thinking about this and think the fact that, well, I mean, if you go back to sort of Marx's time, I mean, most... I mean, the discourse of the left is sort of anti-religion and it's rationalist, and it assumes that rationality is going to you know, coincide with socialism. And that's and sort of one of the things that happens, really, I mean, one of the things that happens from the 60s onwards with you know, the entry into post-modernity, really, is it just becomes apparent that just, it just doesn't really work like that. Yeah, it probably it never, it never was going to work like that. And, yeah, there is a sort of... You know, there's and then there's this moment when I mean, you can point to a you could point to a moment, sort of in the eighties, I would say, when you could you could arguably say, sort of there was a fairly clear distinction, sort of political distinction, in the way that religiosity was aligning with sort of different political tendencies. So you have the new right, the the Reaganite new right, and it was and it was allied to, it was allied to the evangelical Christian conservative movement. And then you had a sort of very there was quite a powerful strain of sort of establishment demo, democrat you know California Democratic Party establishment sort of people like Gary Hart um, Jerry Brown who had these sort of new age you know seemed to have sort of new age affiliations and there was but then I think under the sort of pressures we've been talking about and uh, you know the, all those all those sort of distinctions have broken down. And I, you know, partly because that stuff actually, actually, I guess I'm thinking on my feet here, but I mean, really, that sort of li new age liberalism of the 80s just got absorbed into this neoliberal cosmopolitan technocratic paradigm that we've been describing that, you know, just became actually sort of, in many ways, just became hegemonic. It just became a kind of dominant culture into elements of it just became part of dominant culture. And it and that, and the, and so when people are reacting against that, I think you're, I mean, I think what you're, I think the implications of what you've been saying actually is that there's a sort of diagnosis here of the you know the the QAnon loving yogis that there's someone who does they intuit they in people are sort of intuiting that that the capture of certain elements of new age and the kind of mindfulness being taught at the Google campus and that and that stuff they sort of understand there's a sort of intuition that stuff is wrong yeah, that isn't what should be that isn't where the political place where that religiosity should go or how it should be expressed 
And so it's sort of looking for other forms of expression and it's looking for other forms of articulation and it's and it doesn't want to just collapse back into a kind of retro Marxist, you know, anti-religiosity. And and then, you know, it's completely understandable that it should take some of these very weird forms, you know. Yeah, from, from I think that that's a, that's that's a really key that's a really key thing. You know, I wanted to I wanted to talk about um one other element and then, you know, maybe and, and partly to tie it up to something I said earlier where I promised that I would uh, you know, explain why I spent all that time describing Gnosticism, and this is this is more of a diagnosis of the of diagnosis of the kind of psych, psycho spiritual of appeal of conspiracy, um, and 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 that it has this very interesting kind of Gnostic dialectic. So it, 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 if you were you know remember the the mode of like no actually the world is not ruled by God, it's ruled by these lower forces, and we have to break through it. So if I am, am, you know, drawn down a rabbit hole and find myself, you know, increasingly convinced by a a conspiracy narrative, um, there's a really interesting, there's there's a couple ways that it relates to this sort of, to the idea of agency. One is that part of the, what happens is I start to realize that my conventional world was actually a lie, is that I have what one uh, scholar call, uh, calls agency panic. And that a lot right, of conspiracies right. take this form of like agency panic, which is like, oh my God, I'm not actually in control. I've been manipulated. I've been lied to. And my, my very desires, even my very fundamental beliefs and values are themselves um, implanted or controlled or programmed. So there's a whole other way that all of this stuff relates to ideas in psychobiology and ideas of neuroeconomics and the degree to which contemporary technology is taking advantage of, you know, hardwired components of our nervous system in order to optimize certain things online and optimize buying and the way it's been absorbed by, again, this, the capitalist regime. And that there's some sense of that. And so to, to reassert itself, the agent then has to project agency onto a system that while a sociologist might say, well, the system wants certain things to happen or capitalism, just the way, you know, we've been saying, using the words capitalism as a kind of agent, as a kind of animated entity that is doing certain things. Well, do we actually mean it's a conscious agency? Is it an egregore and from, from occult traditions? Is it some kind of archon from some crypto-Christian tradition? Well, no. We can speak as sociologists uh, or sociologically minded and talk about systems as if they have agency. But for the awakening conspiracy thinker, they do have agency, and that's the point. So that a lot of the 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 ideas around like the the elites and the 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 child abuse things and the Hollywood creep, you know, all of that is because there has to be some kind of identifiable agent as opposed to going, well, civilization is a is a long standing game that we're not playing very well anymore, and the whole system is sort of degrading and falling apart, and we're trying to make meaning and and make life in in, in these collapsing, uh, this collapsing, you know, breakdown of all of these forces. No, it's much easier to, um, you know, to project this kind of, kind of agency. And then this move whereby agency is projected as a way to recover agency on the part of the conspiracy thinker, then there's another dynamic that's even more Gnostic, which is this one, is that you are now awakened. You are now illumined to the truth. You invariably then have some kind of evangelical twist. Now it's not just about understanding what's really going on. It's awakening people from their delusion. So you have like a purpose, you have a, a dimension and a dynamic, but you also have an explanation for any kind of frustration, pain, uh, marginalization, uh, alienation that you have in your life. Because the the you know the archons rule the system so if i've woken up to the archons and i'm trying to get my friends to come along with me but they're rejecting me uh the people at work make fun of me i don't have a girlfriend i just got laid off it doesn't matter because that almost intensifies your knowledge that this is actually the case because it re it explains why those forces of alienation are 
are coming your way because you're an awakened one. So it's like you wake up, but you don't get to rule the world. In fact, you just get to see the way that it's ruled by these other kind of forces. And that whole dynamic is just very, it's A, it's very powerful, and B, it's incredibly well-suited for our particular technological, mediated, political environment. So it's very viral, if you will. Well, that's a really great analysis. And I think, well, there's this whole... There's also there's this whole genealogy of libertarianism, actually, weird libertarianism in California. But I sort of starting to think, I think what you know, we well, I think we're starting to we're going to get tired if we try and talk much longer. And I, there may be a whole other conversation about that sometime. I, you know, because I think because because of the, your work has really helped me understand a feature of the whole culture of neoliberalism, I think, and the neoliberal hegemony that I don't think has really been talked about at all, which is the way in which kind of Californian weird libertarianism, going back to the Discordians and Ayn Rand and other weird stuff, it actually feeds into sort of global neoliberalism. But I sort of think we should maybe talk about that another time. I, I think that's probably good. I think it's because um, I, 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 wanted... I, I like I like the hour long. Our hour is a good chunk of time for both our attention and for the attention of listeners. But I wanted to ask you. Well, I wanted to close by asking you to talk about one thing, just well, just because sure. it's nice to talk about something positive, absolutely and nice, and like and so you know one of the, I mean to some extent. All of the conditions we've been talking about uh, and all of this, the circumstances we've been talking about are sort of one of the reasons why, you know, I know people like me and I, I'm sure you're kind of sympathetic think, you know, there's, there's a, there's, there are good reasons for sort of, you know, you only push back against the kind of right wing capture of some of this stuff and the right wing articulation of stuff, this stuff by a sort of left wing, you know, approach to some of the stuff we've been talking about, but which isn't, which is also non dismissive. And so, you know, we're interested in things like the practices of consciousness raising, and we're interested in, you know, psychedelic and meditative cultures as potentially kind of liberatory and part of a left project. And um, one of the things you've been doing, I know you've been doing that I think is really interesting is, is the psychedelic Sangha, which seems like a really interesting, not, I get that it's not explicitly political, but it seems to be a really interesting sort of alternative to some of the really individualistic or the sort of cultic sort of tendencies which have definitely emerged in psychedelic or re-emerged in psychedelic culture as, as it's become, you know, so not really mainstream, but so so broad that it's it's in it has all these different sort of tendencies in it, including sort of, you know, people like Jordan Peterson and these kind of alt-right figures. But can you say a bit about psychedelic sanger? Sure. I mean, what, there's a couple of, I mean, right now, uh, there, the, 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 the idea for it came from some folks in, in New York City. And uh, the way they were kind of manifesting it is, you know, partly through meditation classes and ideas and and can we just say together. what it is like it's yeah just, just and and, and uh but but they were really focused mostly on events what they were calling happenings and part of the goal was to to rev to revivify the the kind of avant-garde uh uh intuition or move and its relationship to buddhism you know the the John Cage into Fluxus moment, if you will, the idea of happenings, the idea of a kind of experimentalism that is done in in, in a mode of a of a of a quest of a spiritual quest, but is done very much in terms of community and uh, collective gatherings and um, collective art, and so there there that was what was really happening on the ground in New York, and I decided to start. Uh, doing more classes. So I like, I have one coming up on, on, uh, this, this Saturday, the, whatever it is, the 6th, um, of June. And I do these, you know, they're once a month and they're mostly, they're more like meditation classes that are, that were in, in San Francisco in, in a place. And now they're online. Um, and, you know, and my interest has really been to kind of, you know, it's it, it's what it seems to have done is to draw a lot of uh, bridge bridgers. You know, people who are in between. You know, some of them are technology people, some of them are old hippies, some of them are hardcore psychedelic heads. But there's a sense that somewhere between a more a more sophisticated articulation of the relationship between meditation practice and and Buddhist ideas and uh, psychedelics is a kind of exploratory. 
uh, space, that in that very process to use the 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 openness of that environment and the need for exploration as itself a kind of way of formulating community and formulating new ways of talking about stuff within a critical framework. So I'm really interested in just keeping alive a certain kind of uh, uh, criticism or self-reflection um, amidst these things as they go through a period of tremendous in, uh, transformation and incorporation into a lot of mainstream worlds and corporate worlds and uh, medicalized uh, frameworks, and it's been very interesting. So it's—I wouldn't say it's a—it's not like a movement thing, but it's a place for a certain kind of seeker, if you will, uh, to find a community and to find not just a community in terms of individuals that are that are bonding together and maybe doing work together or, or you know, uh, spinning off each other's experiences, but also just a way of exploring what does it mean to be a Sangha. That the idea of the Sangha in Buddhism, which is one of the three jewels, the, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the teach, the Buddha, the guy, the idea that you can do this too, uh, the teachings, the Dharma, and then the Sangha is the community of practitioners. And by really just emphasizing that whatever, wherever we're coming from, we're also part of this community of practice, that that opens up, I think, certain uh, practical and conceptual operations that are limited when there is an explicit teacher or an explicit system. Like, I'm not interested in that. You know, sometimes I think people come are a little frustrated, like they want like a guru or a capital T teacher who's telling them how to meditate or what the thing to do is. And I'm just like, hey, jump in here with <laughs> jump into the mess with us all here and, you know, try to like let's try to make our way out. And I, I just come back to that um, a metaphor that uh, Cornell West dropped on, uh, on a class I was in with him in the in the 80s. And he talked about, um, he, talk, he was actually talking specifically about a kind of Christian attitude towards history or a prophetic left Christian uh, attitude that, that he was representing or has, has represented, uh, which is that we're, we're in a leaky boat together and the boat's leaking. So we got to bail, we got to bail water and the boat's going where it's going, we look at the horizon, we don't see anything, and there we are. That's it. That's where we are. And that sense of community, not as a salvation, not as even a, a unified ideology or a, a tribe, because there's a lot of tribes in, inside popular culture, inside subcultural identities, and that's not quite what it is. It's more like an awareness that the whole process is, is something that we're doing on the fly, moving forward, and that critical thinking, questioning, is part of the process, part of the way that we're bailing the water out from the boat. And so it's not like, it's not designed for mass, you know, a transformation, you know, like it's not the way that gurus make their, their, uh, their, their careers online today. But for me, it's been an incredibly, and others, a very valuable way of kind of bringing some sense into both of these worlds, undermining them and expanding them with each other, um, and and doing it all under and in, in, in a framework of collective practice that I think is in some ways, in some ways, all we have to do, or uh, at least in, in in some dimensions of our life. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. That's a very ACFM way to close. Excellent. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support. <laughs>